Friends, this morning we're not going to have a scripture reader because, spoiler alert, the scripture that I am doing is part of a genealogy, and when that happens, if anybody's going to say names wrong, it probably should be the pastor, right? <laughs> you shouldn't do that to other people. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We are making that leap from the Old Testament into the New Testament because we've been talking about the incarnation, that moment at Christmas, God with us. And we're going to talk about how we, how we bridge that gap, that, that 400-year span between the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ. So if you will pray with me, we will study the Word together. Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. As always, help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. I, I think most of us know each other well enough that we can have an honest conversation about this. So I'm going to ask some questions and you can confess your sins. Have you, how many of you have ever had lobster at Thanksgiving? Okay, Emily will admit to it. All right, how about fish? Just fish in general, any kind of fish. There's a couple. They're like, eh, kind of. All right. Well, I was, I'm from the Mid-Atlantic, born just south of the Mason-Dixon line, and the whole idea of lobster or any other kind of seafood at Thanksgiving, let's just be honest, is nothing short of heresy. Because Thanksgiving is turkey. That's, that's what we do on Thanksgiving. That's why it's called the turkey trot. It's not called the lobster trot. And it's called turkey day, not random fish day. So... So maybe if you're going to go outside the bounds of turkey, maybe you can have ham, but I feel like, I feel like lobster is jumping, jumping the shark. But I'm not sure that all of our New England brothers and sisters would agree with this, which is weird to me because if I remember my elementary school history, they were kind of like the beginners of the whole Thanksgiving movement. So that never really mattered to me all that much until one fateful Thanksgiving when the turkey was replaced with lobster and fish. And there was no warning about this. There was just an invitation by some friends who, who lived on the island with us, and they asked us to bring a side dish. And like crazy people, we brought side dishes that complemented turkey, maybe ham. But the couple that invited us, they were from Maine and New York. They were Coast Guard boat fishing people. He came from a long line of hard scrabble mainers and, and, um, and then from an even harder line of Scandinavian fishermen. Their tradition, their people didn't do turkey on Thanksgiving and apparently that year neither were we. <laughs> knowing where you come from, knowing where you come from has a huge impact on your life. It has a huge impact on the way that you tell stories, the way that you relate to the world, the way that you practice things. It has a huge impact on how your faith gets lived out. In the opening chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel writer takes some time to, to tell us some very important things about who we are as God's people today. Here, Matthew sums up many of, of the people and places that we've been talking about the last few weeks. And typically, when we see genealogy in Scripture, and I think all of us do this, we see a lot of names and we're like, blah, 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 and we skip to whatever the action is. But today, I want you to take a look at this genealogy, see if you notice anything about it. There is no judgment for how I pronounce the words, 
Um, because if, if you feel the need to judge me about it, I will feel the need to invite you to do the next reading of the genealogy. <laughs> so, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Okay. <laughs> Y'all, there's more. <laughs> there's more. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matthew, of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is where you clap. <laughs> all right. So what you have here is a pretty typical genealogy. If you were going to do Ancestry.com, this would be pretty easy to start putting together. But if you look closely at this, there's something particular about this certain biblical genealogy. It's a little bit different than most of what you're going to find in the Old Testament. And it's different in that it includes women. It includes women. And not only does it include women, but it also includes those who previously would have been considered foreigners, who, who had come into a, a straight line. Now, neither of these observations is inconsequential. These are important things to notice because one of the foundational beliefs that we have as Christians is that Jesus Christ came for all people, all people. And sometimes when we tell the genealogies, it makes it sound like, no, really, Jesus only came for the men and also only for those who are directly in Israel's line. But that's not true. Jesus came for all of us, and Matthew's genealogy reflects that. Now, that said, I do want to take a quick look at these women that Matthew chose to include because he didn't, he didn't include all of the women of the Old Testament. He picked Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and one who he calls, ready for this, Mrs. Uriah, who we call Bathsheba. This is, this is the woman that David uh, went outside and was watching take a bath. So in conclusion, what you've got are two prostitutes, a widow, and an adulteress. It is such a good thing. It is such a good thing that the Bible is not just this telling 
of a sinful men and, and women throughout history, but actually the Bible is the story of God announcing what he can do among broken people. Every one of these women points to an unusual divine providence. What great lengths God will go to in order to work out this plan that he promised us as a seed all the way back in Adam and Eve. He's going to get to the manger in Bethlehem, and guess what? Women are going to have to be a part of that because that's how we get from generation to generation. He used, God used the faithlessness of Judah to set up a line that would continue the promise. Who would have thought, who would have thought that an immoral hostess, that's what Rahab's going to go down in history as, would turn out to be known beyond her generation in a conquered land? God even brought a Moabite woman, that's, that's Ruth, who was a widow to a good guy, Boaz, to prepare the way for the coming of the king. And then you have a faithless liaison, the ashamed king, David, was used by God to lead to the great king, who is Christ. God's ways are not our ways. We probably would not have picked this model towards our salvation. Surely, the greatest king of all times should have come from one of the greatest genealogies of all times. Think about the British royal family. People are obsessed with them. We love to look at them throughout history. So if you looked at Jesus' line throughout history, you, you might think, wow, that, that seems like a pretty big mistake. There's, there's really not a whole lot of special people going on in this genealogy. Just like Thanksgiving should always be about turkey, our assumption is that Jesus' line should always be one that is glorious. And I would argue that perhaps Jesus does have the most glorious of all genealogies if we consider, if we consider that God's glory is a revelation of his grace. And there is a ton of grace that goes on through the history of Jesus' line. God did not line up the arrival of his son with a red carpet that flows throughout the Old Testament. Instead, the red line that flows throughout the Old Testament is a scarlet stain of sin passed on from generation to generation. Far more imperfect people than there are paragons of virtue. From people like us, people like you and me, comes Jesus the Christ to people like us, people like you and me. God's grace overcoming the stain of sin. So here we are, in, in, in Jesus' line today, we are 42 generations away from Abraham, from one of the first times that, that there would be this seed from Abraham's line promised to us who's going to save the people. We are years and years and years and years later, and generations of flawed men and women alike have come and gone, and now we get to the arrival of the coming of Jesus. Verse 18 describes it this way. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way when his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and <laughs> unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. Now, that's a part of the story that many of us know, right? We, we know that part where Joseph has to consider what he's going to do. But I want you to think really hard about the position that Joseph is in. He's a young man. 
His future is ahead of him. He is just starting out in life. He's engaged. He's going to get married. When suddenly, suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, he is face to face with the shame of suspicion. And suspicion is a tough thing to overcome, much like perception. Now, we have the great privilege from our part to be standing on the side of history where we know what's going on. But Joseph didn't. And neither did any of the people in town who were going to have to watch Mary and Joseph go through this. How did Mary get pregnant? Who's the father? What were they doing hanging out together before they got married? So now, now we have a young man who has a shadow cast over his life. And he's going to have to make some important decisions about what he's going to do next. Because on his side of things, he doesn't really get to speculate. But isn't it amazing how all the townspeople will get to have their opinion about what happened? It's amazing that we humans, we, we will not hesitate to speculate at the trials of other people. We love to do that. And we show very little concern as to the damage that it might cause them in the process. But then all of a sudden for Joseph, some new information is introduced. An angel of the Lord speaks to Joseph, and he is told not to fear taking Mary into his home, and he's told that the baby in her is from the Holy Spirit, and he's told that he's going to name that baby Jesus, and this is important, he's told why the baby is going to be named Jesus. Verse 20 says, but just when he'd resolved to do this, (coughs) an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, and he's going to save the people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus, Jesus, the name Jesus, the Hebrew name is Joshua, it is Yeshua in Aramaic, and however it is that you choose to pronounce it, it is a name of significance. But what you may not realize is that it wasn't all that unusual. It was actually a very common name. There were lots of little Jesuses running around at that time in Palestine. But the angel didn't just give the name choice. It wasn't like the angel just randomly said, this is what I want you to do. The angel explains why. That this particular boy would live up to his name. That he would save the people from their sins. So now what is Joseph going to do? He's got information that all the townspeople don't have. He's got information that the rest of his family doesn't have. He is surrounded in a cloud of suspicion. He's got this young woman who's supposed to be his wife who is now pregnant. And he's got to think about some things. He's got to think about how this is going to impact his business because his integrity is on the line. So can he be trusted? Can he be trusted as a carpenter to do what he's going to say, to to, to do what he said he's going to do? Hmm? We don't know. We don't know. It might impact his ability to provide for his family. It might even impact his marriage to Mary because there's going to be a tremendous amount of strain on her as she goes out into the marketplace. But here's what's interesting about this. It wasn't like nobody sinned in Nazareth. Everybody was sinning in Nazareth. 
Later on in scripture, it says nothing good ever came out of Nazareth. So what is the big deal? The big deal is that Mary and Joseph were perceived as different. They were perceived as people who who wouldn't do such a thing. Imagine opening up the newspaper and discovering that your child's teacher or the local pediatrician or even the pastor did something that, you know, other people do it, but, but these are people that, that you regard in a different way. Well, that's what was going on for Mary and Joseph. They were regarded in a different way. And when the couple that was perceived to be different from everybody else turned out to be just like everybody else, they don't get treated the same way as everybody else. And we go by that same standard today. When people that we hold to a different standard do something wrong, even if everybody else is doing it, we treat them different. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. (coughs) He took her as his wife, but he had no marital relations with her until she had borne him a son and and he named him Jesus. Matthew does something here that's important for us to notice. He leaves us with no doubt as to what kind of man Joseph was. He had been kind to Mary, even when he thought that she had been unfaithful. And now he proved faithful to God when the days ahead of him looked uncertain. He took Mary into his home. He gave her safety and security. A quick wedding was the best thing for all involved. They had no marital relations until after the birth of the baby boy, and Joseph was faithful to the point of naming that baby Jesus. Three times, three times Matthew points out the name of this child, Jesus. Indeed, the significance of Jesus' birth is wrapped up in the name. Everyone thought, everyone thought that this was just a normal couple in a hurry to get married for, you know, the normal reasons, and later giving birth to a baby with a very common name. But it turns out that this was not normal in any way. How could they face the uncertainties, the knowing looks, the suspicious smiles from family members, or worse, the rejection that might come their way? The reason that Mary and Joseph could do that was because this wasn't a normal situation. The reason they could face the stigma of their sin was because their child was Jesus, the one who would save the people from their sin. When we lose track of our story, either because we never knew it or because we had forgotten the details throughout the years, the traditions that we consider sacred, like turkey at Thanksgiving, begin to lose their value under scrutiny. That's why, that's why when we ask questions like, well, why do we have turkey? Why, why do we do that? Why does our family have mincemeat pie? Sometimes the answer can't just be because we've always done that. Sometimes we have to ask those questions as to why. If all we do is tell the Christmas story year after year, you know, the Gospel of Luke, same story year after year, with no context, no thought about how we got there, no background, then it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that many people don't get it. That people show up at Christmas Eve and they say, oh look, there's a baby in a manger past the presents. Because it's no big deal, they don't, they don't understand. 
But if we understand that at Christmas we celebrate the arrival of God's promise, that seed that was hinted at to us from the very beginning of creation, and we consider all of the years and all of the generations and all of the people and all of the sinners that it took to get to that place, all of a sudden Christmas has a value that far exceeds what we're going to spend in presents. Christmas is all about the world, the whole world, men and women, all nations, sinners and saints, all recipients of God's promise of salvation. We can identify with God's promise because we can see traces of ourselves in our collective history. The Thanksgiving with the fish and the lobster wasn't part of what I understood to be my story. So, like the person who will show up at Christmas Eve and only hears about the arrival of the Christ child, I enjoyed the fish and the lobster. I appreciated the hospitality of our hosts. But I missed something. I didn't get it because it wasn't my story. When we get to Christmas Eve this year and the lights go dim in this place and the candles start to flicker and we start singing Silent Night, I want you to take a moment, just, just a brief moment, and consider how it is that we got here to this place, how far across generations that little seed went to get us to that moment on Christmas Eve night, how God included such a vast array of people all swept up in that moment and how he stayed faithful to us when we could not stay faithful to him. And this Thursday, when you're eating your turkey, your ham, your trout, or your lobster, or SpaghettiOs, I hope that you're going to take the time to give thanks to a God who has given you a story and come good on a promise that has passed through generations and generations and generations to bring you to this point. Let's pray together. God, we, we forget that we are part of a much larger story. We forget that your promises far exceed a single generation. We forget that you came for all nations and all people. Lord, remind us. Remind us as we go into this season that we are part of the promise, every single one of us, and that our story has a value that far exceeds whatever it is that we're going to spend this season. In your name we pray. Amen.